Welcome to the Writer's Showcase podcast. I'm your host today, H.M. Gooden, author of the Paranormal Coming of Age series, The Rise of the Light. This is an Authors on the Air Global Radio Network production. I am thrilled to be joined today by Edward M. Lerner. A- Hi, Heather. Hi, how are you? Good. Now, I have seen some of the things that you've written and you have been very prolific over the years. So maybe I will let you introduce yourself. Okay. I'm a physicist and computer engineer by training. I did that kind of work for 30 years as everything from technical contributor to uh, senior vice president of uh, an internet startup. After a while, I needed a change of pace. And after I sold my second book, which I'd written in hobby mode, I decided, huh, the first one wasn't a fluke. Let's see where I can go with this. And 20 books later, I'm still going with it. And and I see on your webpage, you talk about, I think your first book came out in 1991. Right. And then the second was 2005. That's quite a, a gap. What were you doing in between there in terms of writing and work and just kind of everything? There was a pesky day job in there. I know. I have that problem. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, for the largest chunk of that time, I was working at Hughes Aircraft which uh, at the time was a large NASA contractor before it got swallowed up by Raytheon. Okay. So there I was, an aspiring science fiction author, working on what was at the time NASA's third largest project, learning all sorts of great cool stuff that could go into stories with absolutely no time to work on them. Oh, that must have been frustrating. It really was, but... uh, After I left uh, Hughes and went to slightly less insane venues Mm -hmm. and finished the second book, a lot of that uh, Hughes and NASA experience went into book two. Oh, I can I can only imagine because you must have been working like 20 hour days often. A lot of the time it was seven days a week Mm -hmm. and 10, 12 hour days on good days. Yeah. Yeah, those guys, uh, they have quite the work ethic. And, and I mean, sometimes it's, you, you forget the time too, because it's, it's quite absorbing. Oh, it was fascinating. It was the best job I ever had. At the, uh, the peak of the experience, I was running a development group with more than 300 engineers and scientists in it. Wow. And where was that located? Like, where, where are you based out of? Okay. I'm in the D.C. metro area, and the customer was NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, which is in Greenbelt, Maryland. Wow. So pretty big deal kind of position in terms of both responsibility and time and all of the things. All of the things. Now, the coolest part of it was uh, Hughes is also the uh, the prime contractor for training simulators for NASA. So when I had occasion to go down to Johnson Space Center in Houston, I got to fly the shuttle training simulator, although I basically crashed it. Well, I mean, that's fine. It was a simulator. Yeah, it's a simulator. 
<laughs> and walk through the, uh, the space uh, station simulator. Wow. So it, it was a very cool experience and uh, quite handy for uh, an aspiring science fiction author. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure you've got that in multiple things that you've written. Uh, like, I mean, just that, that feeling of actually being in the shuttle in the safest possible way, yeah. which, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's what we all want. <laughs> yeah. Now, the other part of my background is computer engineering. Yes. And... The thing about computers is no matter what industry you might want to work in, they use computers and you can go there. And they so don't I train just, us how. They just say, here's your computer, use it. Yeah, well, yeah. when you've got a master's in computer science, they kind of expect you to know how to figure these things out. Yeah, I took keyboarding in grade 10 and okay. I have worked with computers my entire adult life. You know, it's just, yeah. I'm, I'm that generation that got just a little bit, but not nearly enough to keep up with like all of the technology that's just in every industry now. Well, you have your own specialty to keep track of. So I think that's uh, reasonable. Yeah, well, I am definitely tempted to like pick your brain when it comes to all of the, you know, all of the tech side of things, because physics and computers are the two things that I did in university that I was like, this is clearly not my area. <laughs> I felt bad for my one TA in intro to physics because if it wasn't for him, I would not have passed that one. Well, that's how I felt about chemistry and biology. I just could not memorize everything I was supposed to memorize. And, and you see, it's funny you say that because I think People that I know that do more of the bioengineering side of things, they often tell me that there is a lot of overlap between biology and computer systems. You can approach them both with system theory. So, yeah, yeah I can see that. And actually, that kind of brings me possibly to your latest and possibly greatest release. Greatest so far. Yes. So Deja Doomed is your latest book and it launched on May 26th. Is that correct? 25. Oh, 25. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's interesting that we're talking about computers and biology because I've had a chance to read two thirds of it. And I definitely was getting um, that kind of a feel from that book. Well, that wasn't coincidental, of course. Yes. The computer stuff uh, we've already talked about, that's a lot of my background. Yeah. The biology uh, takes more research on my part. Happily, I know some doctors and uh, the occasional biologists who are happy to chime in and help me get those details straight, or so I like to think. Which is perfect because nothing drives any specialist crazier than than catching those mistakes in a book that's amazing. So that's a good start. Yeah. And what, what kind of inspired this book? Okay. I should start answering that by saying a couple of words what it's about. To okay, yes, right tell. Context. So the book opens with a detail that's right on the back cover, so it's not a spoiler, that... Uh, a prospector who is operating a 
robot remotely on the moon looking for mineral wealth comes across an alien body in a spacesuit on the moon. Well, if you need a spacesuit, you're not native to the moon. Where could you have come from but outside the solar system? So pretty soon it's obvious that there might be advanced technology to be found and everyone wants to find it and no one wants their adversaries to have it. So where did this come from? Well, I am fascinated with uh, the question of, are we alone? Because whatever the answer is, it's profound either way. Yes. Science fiction is big on first contact stories and search for extraterrestrial intelligence stories. And admittedly, mm -hmm. I've written a few of that vein too, but I'm still interested in it. And I wanted to do something different. And what I came up with to do differently was to make the contact disjoint in time that the aliens who came to the moon and whose artifacts uh, can still be found were here long ago. Mm -hmm. And that can happen on the moon because it's a vacuum. And if things are underground, they're at a constant low temperature and they're sheltered mm -hmm. from radiation, they can uh, persist indefinitely. Yeah, there would be no rust, no oxidization, no, none of the usual breakdown that we would expect on Earth. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's really where I was coming from. And uh, I can only speak for myself here, but I had great fun doing the research for it. Well, and I, I cannot wait to finish, but so far it's, it kind of combines in, in some ways, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but some of the older science fiction that I remember reading like from the 70s and 80s and, mm -hmm. and some of those great space exploration first contact stories. Yes, I see that. And as a general comment, the stories I write tend to be in that few years ago tradition before the current craze of vampires, zombies, and uh, other dystopias. No space zombies and no space vampires for you. Just the, the good old fashioned alien space exploration, Asimov kind of. Oh, there are nasty problems. And oh, if yes. things go badly, uh, we're all toast but there's a chance of solving it. Well, and I can't ruin the ending because I haven't got there yet. But the other thing that really kind of struck me is, is not only was there this, this really kind of classic science fiction feel to it, but I also kind of felt almost like I was reading like a Michael Crichton or, or James Patterson kind of mystery because I just, I'm reading it and I, I can't wait to see what happens next because I can't predict this story. Music to my ears. I figured Thank you wouldn't mind that. hearing that. <laughs> right. And in a sense, what you're describing is that I write on the cusp between science fiction and techno thrillers. Yes. Yes, Sometimes exactly. Mm -hmm. And that is what I do. Sometimes I write purely science fiction. Sometimes I write purely techno thrillers, but this one being near future and staying within the inner solar system is very much on that cusp. 
And I possibly am identifying a little more with this story than I otherwise would because I feel for one of those main characters' wives because I am the same age as she is in the book. And I know exactly how much that part of pregnancy sucks. So, I mean, here she is going, oh, what has he gotten himself into this time? And I just, you know, from that wife, mom, Mm -hmm. scientist perspective, it's just, it's very realistic, which is nice because I often find not everybody writes those characters well, unless they are that character. Okay. Well, I can't uh, write as somebody's wife, but uh, I have a wife who can sanity check me. And does she reality check when you're writing characters like this? She is my first and favorite reader. That's perfect. And she's honest because she's your wife. Yes. (laughs) And um, her training is in uh, library science and music education. Oh, perfect. if she says, hey, Ed, this has gotten a little bit wonky, I know to dial it down. Good. Well, and that is another wonderful, like as a first reader, the, the stuff she can bring with her background. Again, it's, it's almost the same thing. Like music is, you know, math and mm-hmm. systems by itself as well. Well, not in everybody's case. Well, what kind of some music? Some of us are left brains and some of us are right brained. Yes. And some of us aren't sure which part of the brain is firing at any time when we chase a different uh, story idea down the road. So it is good to have someone veer you back. Yes. And that- yes, it is very handy to have someone with a different background yeah. sanity check things. And I mean, you've covered kind of four major areas there. So if you have a couple of people to... I don't know. I don't even know what else you'd need to fill in. You've got music, you've got library sciences, physics, astrophysics. <laughs> well, Computers. because of my background, I know people who are still practicing physicists and computer engineers. Yeah. And sometimes I run stuff past them because, yes, that's my background, but uh, it hasn't been my full-time vocation for quite a while. So how long would you say it's been since you started writing full-time? 2004. Oh, wow. So so you've really been very dedicated. Yes. uh, After 30 years and a different career, I was ready to do something different. And this counts as different. Yeah. Well, and there is a lot of overlap between the two areas. But some people might look at that the heavy science background and just go, how did you get to such a heavy creative current career? Do you think there's similarities or things that make that a natural transition? Well, there are some aspects that fit naturally and some that have to be avoided like the plague. Um, There's a joke about engineers that uh, in the life of every product comes the time when you have to shoot the engineers and ship. (laughs) I have several engineers in my family, so that sounds correct. (laughs) Yes. And also engineers make terrible salespeople because they can't just take yes for an answer. It has to be yes for their reason. Yes. You can't just agree with it. You're like, no, no, but you're agreeing because it's this kind of function. Yeah, that's okay. But it's, I like this part. No, no, it has to be that thing. (laughs) 
Yeah. So there is a little bit of rigidity that is uh, very beneficial in engineering that really doesn't cut it uh, as a writer or trying to work with editors. Yeah. So how has that been for you? Because that would be quite the adjustment. Well, it might have helped that I was always a voracious reader mm. and got lots of examples of uh, science fiction and other kinds of fiction that uh, I thought were very good. I think one of the standard bits of advice to aspiring uh, writers is read, 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 and figure out why what works for you works and why what doesn't work for you doesn't work. And read what you love and write what you love. Yeah. And you're definitely staying close to those things. Yeah. But uh, sometimes the advice for writers is write what you know. And uh, I don't really know anything about being in other solar systems. Uh, you except can imagine it because you've been hand. in a simulator. <laughs> yeah. So science fiction authors don't hold with the concept. You can only write what you know. You no, write what and, you know. and that's what's so wonderful about both science fiction and fantasy is we are building on the things that we already know and understand. And we're saying, what if? Yes. What would that be like? But the urge to be totally logical hasn't gone away. <laughs> so not as often as I write fiction, I write popular science. Oh. And I've written a couple dozen uh, popular science articles and one series of articles about how science is used and abused in science fiction. Yes. I eventually had enough such articles that I collected them and updated them and integrated them into a nonfiction book called Troping the Light Fantastic, the science behind the fiction. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic read. And, you I know, like it's just so. even just, you know, reading newspaper articles, you're just like, is that just to get people to read it? Because that's not how that goes. Yes, the science <laughs> in daily newspapers tends to be a bit spotty. It can. And even when they have an expert who is giving the information correctly, the yep. way they spin it, it's just like, that doesn't look at all like what it looked like yeah. in reality. From the few times I've been uh, interviewed by mainstream media and then gotten to see what they made of what I said, it makes me wonder what the if the error rate on other topics is quite so high? Well, definitely it is not awesome in most medical reporting, which unfortunately is not great during a pandemic. Right. Um, and you know, if if you can't trust the people that are giving you the news, it's really really hard for people to join together, and it, it's hard to be a critical reader when most people do not learn to critically appraise articles. Yeah, for my hometown paper, which is the Washington Post, yeah. once the pandemic started, they enlisted uh, a practicing physician who at one point was uh, the chief medical officer for the city of Baltimore. And she did all the daily uh, reporting and interpreting. And that was wonderful. That must have been really good. Yes, because it, it's such a difference and, and being able to get the information out there, whether you're writing a news article, 
science fiction, uh, nonfiction, it's distilling information into a way that people want to read it and they can understand it. And it's interesting. Yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. I, I've mentioned my wife is my first reader. Yeah. And this extends to the popular science stuff too. Okay. And boy, she was dreading the articles that I did on time travel because they have to talk about relativity and thermodynamics and all sorts of wonky stuff. And how did she feel after she read it? <laughs> she came in and said, you know, I was really dreading it, but these were interesting. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing about physics. I have always found it interesting, but just like, it's almost like that part of my brain, it could not, I mean, I can do the equations. That was okay. I love math. I love science, but physics, it was just the idea. I think it was maybe too large of a scope. Yeah. Well, uh, in my senior year of getting a bachelor's in physics, I switched over, uh, switched career paths to computer engineering. Yeah. I'm good at physics, I understand physics, but that was the year of quantum mechanics. And quantum oh. mechanics is just so counterintuitive. And you ask questions about it and the standard answer is basically shut up and calculate. Yeah, and if it was only calculation, I might've been able to handle it. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I think but I did an article about it when I was in grade nine and it just, I. Quirks, quirks, and other everyday occurrences. I remember the title. I have no idea what I was talking about. That's a great title. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> so I switched over to computer engineering. And whereas I continue to use the physics background, mm -hmm. uh, both with computers and obviously now writing science fiction, I never look back from computers. And a lot of my writing is very computer-based rather than physics-based. And I actually wondered about that because I have heard from others in the past. And again, I don't know how accurate the information is, but I've heard it said by some people in the computer science, computer engineering areas, that a lot of the people that are considered computer science or programmers now, they don't have the same kind of understanding of what it means to actually program these systems because they may not know, like they've never worked in DOS or whatever. Now, there are different levels of abstraction. Yeah. Back when I started, uh, a lot of programming was done in so-called assembly language, mm -hmm. where the, uh, the alphanumeric codes that you use to program the computer had a one-to-one -one correspondence with a step that the computer would take. And they were very elemental things like take the, the variable that's in register 42 and add to it the contents of memory location 112. And then came higher level languages like Fortran and PL1 and C. And you could do many machine instructions in one uh, human understandable instruction. And then we went to um, graphic user interfaces and you weren't writing code per se, you were dragging widgets around and piling mm -hmm. them on top of each other. So absolutely the nature 
of how you develop software has changed over time. And if you need to understand what's going on at the lowest levels, uh, not everyone who's in software development can still do it. My uh, son is a programmer. He works on uh, developing video games. Okay. And his part of uh, the job is to take code, which may be extremely inefficient because it's been developed using one of the more abstract levels and getting into the bowels of what the computer is doing to tighten things up, which requires that detailed, low-level understanding of how things actually work. So could he get into like an old Commodore 64 or whatever and still program that way? I'm sure he could. Yeah. I don't know that he's ever specifically used a Commodore 64, but he's done. I think that's what we had in elementary program. school. <laughs> okay. We had an Atari 2600. My aunt and, and uncle had an Atari with Minesweeper. Yeah. And like this was in the early 80s. We had no tech in our house. And I mm -hmm. thought that was the most amazing game ever. And I played it a few years ago and it was like. <laughs> well. Things change. Yeah. And you know what? It's still a great game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My publicist would be appalled at this conversation. We haven't talked about a book in minutes well, and minutes. We are because we're talking about the synthesis of the books and the computer part. Because at least in your most recent book, this is a lot about what makes a computer and you know, what, I mean, this whole, this, the things they find, it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. One of the things that I had fun with and hopefully readers will too, is among the artifacts that the humans find on the moon are alien computers. And if you have no language in common with them and no idea how they think, do you have a prayer of a chance of extracting any information out of their computer. Yeah. And I mean, that's basically, it's like showing up in another country, but without being able to point to like, you know, sky, sky, you know. Yeah. You, you can't do that and you can't even talk loud. Mm -hmm. Standard way of handling it. Uh, yeah. And that, I don't understand that. I mean, it works when people are hard of hearing, but that's yeah. basically it. <laughs> Slower is not a bad idea. But louder doesn't, yeah. So um, I am definitely looking forward to finding out because I'm getting to that part where it's like things are really rolling in terms of uh, the excitement level in the book. Is there anything that you would like to touch on in that book that I don't want to spoil anything? And I also don't know the ending, but I'm just curious if you could say something about the book that would grab a reader's attention or somebody that was you know, trying to pick out what book they would like to read next that has some first contact and, and things like that, what would you say? Well, on top of everything we've hinted at so far, um, among other things that will come out in the book in a way I will not tip off, is some long misunderstood truths about Earth's history. I can't wait. I was wondering, because is it, um, who, who wrote the, the short story? Was it Men from Mars? 
There's, I don't recognize that title. I don't know if I have the name right. I think it was like, I don't think it was Asimov. It might've been um, someone even earlier, but it was basically, they go into the, the depths of the Amazon jungle and they find that what we think of as humans, you know, the people that are here, we're actually the aliens. There have been a few stories that have that premise, and I'm not saying one way or another whether that has any bearing on Deja Doomed, but a couple of interesting stories that uh, played with that premise are Protector by Larry Niven okay. and Inherit the Stars by James P. Hogan. I think I've heard of that one. Yes. James P. Hogan's book, Inherit the Stars, has a cover with a dead body skeletonized in a spacesuit on the moon. Oh. And this might sound familiar, but that's a human skeleton. Yeah. And mine is an alien skeleton. And the books rapidly diverged from uh, then on. Oh, that is interesting. I'm going to have to go find that book and I'm going to compare the covers now, but that is a really clever play. So anybody that reads in that genre extensively would, would actually get that symbolism. They may very well. People who <laughs> like science, intensive science fiction are familiar with both Hogan and Niven. Yeah, well, absolutely. I've definitely heard both the names, but I have also heard of that last book that you mentioned. So, well, this has been really interesting and I definitely am going to finish Deja Doomed because I can't wait to see what happens next. But there was a few other books on your webpage that also piqued my interest. I may or may not be a little bit of a Sherlock Holmes fan. Okay. And I did see you had a collection of, is it an AI Sherlock Holmes? Yes. The book in question is called The Sherlock Chronicles and the Paradise Quartet. It's two foursomes of stories, two story arcs. And bizarrely, that book came out about two weeks ago. Oh, it are you serious? To write a book. But oh. publishers take between a couple months and two years to get a book out the door. So that's what happened. Well, that is uh, really interesting because yes. that one caught my attention immediately because that is definitely uh, something that I, I quite enjoy. Okay. Well, if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, you should get a kick out of those. Yes. Uh, the premise is that uh, AIs, because they're based on you know, supercomputers, think so quickly they have endless nanoseconds to fill. And the protagonist thinks, you know, why not deal with some of these human mysteries? It'll fill a little bit of time. What can be the harm? And it turns out there's lots of harm. Oh, of course, because what would yes. be the story? It's, right. you know, that sounds fantastic. I'm definitely going to be picking that one up. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much. And where can people find you so that they can pick up all of the books that we've talked about and all of the ones that we haven't talked about, because you have quite the list on there. Okay. Well, my website is edwardmlearner.com. My blog is blog.edwardmlearner.com. Fantastic. My Facebook page, just search for Edward M. Learner. The trick, of course, is spell learner correctly, L-E-R-N-E-R. -E There's no A in there, which is a mistake that uh, people make occasionally. Um, 
And of course, I've got a page on Amazon with all of my titles. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And congratulations on your most recent launch and the one that launched a few weeks ago that I didn't realize had just come out. But I'm definitely going to be checking that one out once I'm done this one. And uh, I have very much enjoyed uh, getting back into the science fiction because it, it actually has been a while since I've read it and I forgot how much I enjoyed it. Well, Heather, thank you for having me. This has been a delightful conversation. Well, thank you very much. And I might track you down if I have computer questions, <laughs> because we all need someone to can fact check us, right? Yes, indeed. Well, you know where to find me. Well, perfect. Edward M. Lerner, thank you so much for joining me on this edition of the Writer Showcase podcast. And all the best. Thanks. Thank you. This has been a Writer's Showcase podcast production copyrighted by the Authors on the Air Global Network.